We now continue with the June 8, 2023 opinion of the court in Allen v. Milligan. Beginning with Part 3 of the Opinion The heart of these cases is not about the law as it exists. It is about Alabama's attempt to remake our Section 2 jurisprudence anew. The centerpiece of the state's effort is what it calls the race-neutral benchmark. The theory behind it is this. Using modern computer technology, mapmakers can now generate millions of possible districting maps for a given state. The maps can be designed to comply with traditional districting criteria, but to not consider race. The mapmaker can determine how many majority-minority districts exist in each map, and can then calculate the median or average number of majority-minority districts in the entire million-map set. That number is called the race-neutral benchmark. The state contends that this benchmark should serve as the point of comparison in Section 2 cases. The benchmark, the state says, was derived from maps that were race-blind, maps that cannot have denied or abridged anyone's right to vote on account of race because they never took race into account in the first place. Courts in Section 2 cases should therefore compare the number of majority-minority districts in the state's plan to the benchmark. If those numbers are similar, if the state's map resembles the benchmark in this way, then, Alabama argues, the state's map also cannot have denied or abridged anyone's right to vote on account of race. Alabama contends that its approach should be adopted for two reasons. First, the state argues that a race-neutral benchmark best matches the text of the Voting Rights Act. Section 2 requires that the political processes be equally open. What that means, the state asserts, is that the state's map cannot impose obstacles or burdens that block or seriously hinder voting on account of race. These obstacles do not exist, in the state's view, where its map resembles a map that never took race into account. Second, Alabama argues that the Jingles framework ends up requiring racial proportionality in districting. According to the state, Jingles demands that where another majority black district could be drawn, it must be drawn. And that sort of proportionality, Alabama continues, is inconsistent with the compromise that Congress struck, with the text of Section 2, and with the Constitution's prohibition on racial discrimination in voting. To apply the race-neutral benchmark in practice, Alabama would require Section 2 plaintiffs to make at least three showings. First, the illustrative plan that plaintiffs adduce for the first jingle's precondition cannot have been based on race. Second, plaintiffs must show at the totality of circumstances stage that the state's enacted plan diverges from the average plan that would be drawn without taking race into account. And finally, plaintiffs must ultimately prove 
that any deviation between the state's plan and a race-neutral plan is explainable only by race, not, for example, by the state's naturally occurring geography and demography. As we explain below, we find Alabama's new approach to Section 2 compelling neither in theory nor in practice. We accordingly decline to recast our Section 2 case law as Alabama requests. Section A 1. Section 2 prohibits states from imposing any standard practice or procedure in a manner which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen to vote on account of race or color. What that means, Section 2 goes on to explain, is that the political processes in the state must be equally open such that minority voters do not have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. We have understood the language of Section 2 against the background of the hard-fought compromise that Congress struck. To that end, we have reiterated that Section 2 turns on the presence of discriminatory effects, not discriminatory intent. And we have explained that it is patently clear that Congress has used the words on account of race or color in the Act to mean with respect to race or color and not to connote any required purpose of racial discrimination. Individuals thus lack an equal opportunity to participate in the political process when a state's electoral structure operates in a manner that minimizes or cancels out their voting strength. That occurs where an individual is disabled from entering into the political process in a reliable and meaningful manner in the light of past and present reality, political and otherwise. A district is not equally open, in other words, when minority voters face, unlike their majority peers, block voting along racial lines arising against the backdrop of substantial racial discrimination within the state that renders a minority vote unequal to a vote by a non-minority voter. The state's reading of Section 2, by contrast, runs headlong into our precedent. Alabama asserts that a state's map does not abridge a person's right to vote on account of race if the map resembles a sufficient number of race-neutral alternatives. But our cases have consistently focused, for purposes of litigation, on the specific illustrative maps that a plaintiff adduces. Deviation from that map shows it is possible that the state's map has a disparate effect on account of race. The remainder of the Jingles test helps determine whether that possibility is reality by looking to polarized voting preferences and the frequency of racially discriminatory actions taken by the state, past and present. A state's liability under Section 2, moreover, must be determined based on the totality of circumstances, yet Alabama suggests there is only one circumstance that matters, how the state's map stacks up relative to the benchmark. 
that single-minded view of Section 2 cannot be squared with the VRA's demand that courts employ a more refined approach. And we decline to adopt an interpretation of Section 2 that would revise and reformulate the Jingles Threshold Inquiry that has been the baseline of our Section 2 jurisprudence for nearly 40 years. 2. Alabama also argues that the race-neutral benchmark is required because our existing Section 2 jurisprudence inevitably demands racial proportionality in districting, contrary to the last sentence of Section 2b. But properly applied, the Jingles framework itself imposes meaningful constraints on proportionality, as our decisions have frequently demonstrated. In Shaw v. Reno, for example, we considered the permissibility of a second majority-minority district in North Carolina, which at the time had 12 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and a 20% black voting age population. The second majority-minority district North Carolina drew was 160 miles long and, for much of its length, no wider than the interstate corridor. The district wound in snake-like fashion through tobacco country, financial centers, and manufacturing areas, until it gobbled in enough enclaves of black neighborhoods. Indeed, the district was drawn so imaginatively that one state legislator remarked, if you drove down the interstate with both car doors open, you'd kill most of the people in the district. Though North Carolina believed that the additional district was required by Section 2, we rejected that conclusion, finding instead that those challenging the map stated a claim of impermissible racial gerrymandering under the Equal Protection Clause. In so holding, we relied on the fact that the proposed district was not reasonably compact. North Carolina had concentrated a dispersed minority population in a single district by disregarding traditional districting principles such as compactness, contiguity, and respect for political subdivisions. And a reapportionment plan that includes in one district individuals who belong to the same race but who are otherwise separated by geographical and political boundaries, we said, raised serious constitutional concerns. The same theme emerged in our 1995 decision in Miller v. Johnson, where we upheld a district court's finding that one of Georgia's 10 congressional districts was the product of an impermissible racial gerrymander. At the time, Georgia's black voting age population was 27%, but there was only one majority-minority district. To comply with the VRA, Georgia thought it necessary to create two more majority-minority districts, achieving proportionality. But like North Carolina and Shaw, Georgia could not create the districts without flouting traditional criteria. One district centered around four discrete, widely spaced urban centers that had absolutely nothing to do with each other— and stretch the district hundreds of miles across rural counties and narrow swamp corridors. Geographically, we said of the map, it is a monstrosity. In Bush v. Vera, a plurality of the court again explained how traditional districting criteria 
limited any tendency of the VRA to compel proportionality. The case concerned Texas's creation of three additional majority-minority districts. Though the districts brought the state closer to proportional representation, we nevertheless held that they constituted racial gerrymanders in violation of the 14th Amendment. That was because the districts had no integrity in terms of traditional, neutral, redistricting criteria. One of the majority black districts consisted of narrow and bizarrely shaped tentacles. The proposed majority Hispanic district resembled a sacred Mayan bird with spindly legs reaching south and a plumed head rising northward. The point of all this is a simple one. Forcing proportional representation is unlawful and inconsistent with this court's approach to implementing Section 2. The numbers bear the point out well. At the congressional level, the fraction of districts in which black preferred candidates are likely to win is currently below the black share of the eligible voter population in every state but three. Only one state in the country, meanwhile, has attained a proportional share of districts in which Hispanic preferred candidates are likely to prevail. That is because as residential segregation decreases, as it has sharply done since the 1970s, satisfying traditional districting criteria such as the compactness requirement becomes more difficult. Indeed, as Amiki supporting the appellees emphasize, Section 2 litigation in recent years has rarely been successful for just that reason. Since 2010, plaintiffs nationwide have apparently succeeded in fewer than 10 Section 2 suits. And the only state legislative or congressional districts that were redrawn because of successful Section 2 challenges were a handful of state house districts near Milwaukee and Houston. By contrast, numerous lower courts have upheld districting maps where, due to minority populations' geographic diffusion, plaintiffs couldn't design an additional majority-minority district or satisfy the compactness requirement. The same has been true of recent litigation in this court. Reapportionment, we have repeatedly observed, is primarily the duty and responsibility of the states, not the federal courts. Properly applied, the jingles factors help ensure that remains the case. As respondents themselves emphasize, Section 2 never requires adoption of districts that violate traditional redistricting principles. Its exacting requirements instead limit judicial intervention to those instances of intensive racial politics, where the excessive role of race in the electoral process denies minority voters equal opportunity to participate. Section B. Although we are content to reject Alabama's invitation to change existing law on the ground that the state misunderstands Section 2 and our decisions implementing it, we also address how the race-neutral benchmark would operate in practice. Alabama's approach fares poorly on that score, which further counsels against our adopting it. 1. The first change to existing law that Alabama would require 
is prohibiting the illustrative maps that plaintiffs submit to satisfy the first jingles precondition from being based on race. Although Alabama is not entirely clear whether, under its view, plaintiffs' illustrative plans must not take race into account at all or whether they must not prioritize race, we see no reason to impose such a new rule. When it comes to considering race in the context of districting, we have made clear that there is a difference between being aware of racial considerations and being motivated by them. The former is permissible, the latter is usually not. That is because redistricting legislatures will almost always be aware of racial demographics. But such race consciousness does not lead inevitably to impermissible race discrimination. Section 2 itself demands consideration of race. The question whether additional majority-minority districts can be drawn, after all, involves a quintessentially race-conscious calculus. At the same time, however, race may not be the predominant factor in drawing district lines unless there is a compelling reason. Race predominates in the drawing of district lines, our cases explain, when race-neutral considerations come into play only after the race-based decision has been made. That may occur where race, for its own sake, is the overriding reason for choosing one map over others. While the line between racial predominance and racial consciousness can be difficult to discern, it was not breached here. The Castor plaintiffs relied on illustrative maps produced by expert Bill Cooper. Cooper testified that while it was necessary for him to consider race, he also took several other factors into account, such as compactness, contiguity, and population equality. Cooper testified that he gave all these factors equal weighting. And when asked squarely whether race predominated in his development of the illustrative plans, Cooper responded, no, it was a consideration. This is a Section 2 lawsuit, after all, but it did not predominate or dominate. The district court agreed. It found Cooper's testimony highly credible and commended Cooper for working hard to give equal weight to all traditional redistricting criteria. The court also explained that Alabama's evidence of racial predominance in Cooper's maps was exceedingly thin. Alabama's expert, Thomas Bryan, testified that he never reviewed the exhibits to Mr. Cooper's report and that he never reviewed one of the illustrative maps that Cooper submitted. Bryan further testified that he could offer no conclusions or opinions as to the apparent basis of any individual line-drawing decisions in Cooper's illustrative plans. By his own admission, Bryan's analysis of any race predominance in Cooper's maps was pretty light. The district court did not err in finding that race did not predominate in Cooper's maps in light of the evidence before it. The dissent contends that race nevertheless predominated in both Cooper's and Duchin's maps because they were designed to hit express racial targets, namely two 50% plus majority black districts. 
This argument fails in multiple ways. First, the dissent's reliance on Bethune Hill is mistaken. In that case, this court was unwilling to conclude that a state's maps were produced in a racially predominant manner. Instead, we remanded for the lower court to conduct the predominance analysis itself, explaining that the use of an express racial target was just one factor among others that the court would have to consider as part of a holistic analysis. Justice Thomas dissented in relevant part, contending that because the legislature sought to achieve a black voting age population of at least 55%, race necessarily predominated in its decision-making. But the court did not join in that view, and Justice Thomas again dissents along the same lines today. The second flaw in the dissent's proposed approach is its inescapable consequence. Jingles must be overruled. According to the dissent, racial predominance plagues every single illustrative map ever adduced at the first step of Jingles. For all those maps were created with an express target in mind. They were created to show, as our cases require, that an additional majority-minority district could be drawn. That is the whole point of the enterprise. The upshot of the approach the dissent urges is not to change how Jingles is applied, but to reject its framework outright. The contention that mapmakers must be entirely blind to race has no footing in our Section 2 case law. The line that we have long drawn is between consciousness and predominance. Plaintiffs adduced at least one illustrative map that comported with our precedents. They were required to do no more to satisfy the first step of Jingles. 2. The next condition Alabama would graft into Section 2 is a requirement that plaintiffs demonstrate, at the totality of circumstances stage, that the state's enacted plan contains fewer majority-minority districts than the race-neutral benchmark. If it does not, then Section 2 should drop out of the picture. Alabama argues that is what should have happened here. It notes that one of plaintiff's experts, Dr. Duchin, used an algorithm to create 2 million districting plans for Alabama without taking race into account in any way in the generation process. Of these 2 million race-blind plans, None contained two majority black districts, while many plans did not contain any. Alabama also points to a race-neutral computer simulation conducted by another one of plaintiff's experts, Dr. Kosuk Imai, which produced 30,000 potential maps. As with Dr. Duchin's maps, none of the maps that Dr. Imai created contained two majority black districts. Alabama thus contends that because HB1 sufficiently resembles the race-neutral maps created by Dr. Duchin and Dr. Imai, all of the maps lack two majority black districts. HB1 does not violate Section 2. Alabama's reliance on the maps created by Dr. Duchin and Dr. Imai is misplaced. For one, neither Duchin's nor Imai's maps 
accurately represented the districting process in Alabama. Dr. Duchin's maps were based on old census data from 2010 instead of 2020 and ignored certain traditional districting criteria such as keeping together communities of interest, political subdivisions, or municipalities. And Dr. Emai's 30,000 maps failed to incorporate Alabama's own districting guidelines, including keeping together communities of interest and preserving municipal boundaries. But even if the maps created by Dr. Duchin and Dr. Emai were adequate comparators, we could not adopt the map comparison test that Alabama proposes. The test is flawed in its fundamentals. Districting involves myriad considerations, compactness, contiguity, political subdivisions, natural geographic boundaries, county lines, pairing of incumbents, communities of interest, and population equality. Yet, quantifying, measuring, prioritizing, and reconciling these criteria requires map drawers to make difficult, contestable choices. And it is easy to imagine how different criteria could move the median map toward different distributions, meaning that the same map could be lawful or not, depending solely on what the mapmakers said they set out to do. For example, the scientific literature contains dozens of competing metrics on the issue of compactness. Which one of these metrics should be used? What happens when the maps they produce yield different benchmark results? How are courts to decide? Alabama does not say. It offers no rule or standard for determining which of these choices are better than others. Nothing in Section 2 provides an answer either. In 1982, the computerized map-making software that Alabama contends plaintiffs must use to demonstrate an unspecified level of deviation did not exist. And neither the text of Section 2 nor the fraught debate that produced it suggests that equal access to the fundamental right of voting turns on computer simulations that are technically complicated, expensive to produce, and available to only a small cadre of university researchers that have the resources and expertise to run them. One final point bears mentioning. Throughout these cases, Alabama has repeatedly emphasized that HB1 cannot have violated Section 2 because none of plaintiffs' 2 million-odd maps contained more than one majority-minority district. The point is that 2 million is a very big number, and that sheer volume matters. But as elsewhere, Alabama misconceives the math project that it expects courts to oversee. A brief submitted by three computational redistricting experts explains that the number of possible districting maps in Alabama is at least in the trillion trillions. Another publication reports that the number of potential maps may be orders of magnitude higher. The universe of all possible connected, population-balanced districting plans that satisfy the state's requirements, it explains, is likely in the range of Googles. Two million maps, in other words, is not many maps at all. 
and Alabama's insistent reliance on that number, however powerful it may sound in the abstract, is thus close to irrelevant in practice. What would the next million maps show? The next billion? The first trillion of the trillion trillions? Answerless questions all. Section 2 cannot require courts to judge a contest of computers when there is no reliable way to determine who wins, or even where the finish line is. We again find little merit in Alabama's proposal. As we have already explained, our precedents and the legislative compromise struck in the 1982 amendments clearly rejected treating discriminatory intent as a requirement for liability under Section 2. Yet Alabama's proposal is even more demanding than the intent test Congressman jettisoned. Demonstrating discriminatory intent, we have long held, does not require a plaintiff to prove that the challenged action rested solely on racially discriminatory purpose. Alabama's proposed approach stands in sharp contrast to all this, injecting into the effects test of Section 2 an evidentiary standard that even our purposeful discrimination cases eschew. Section C. Alabama finally asserts that the court should outright stop applying Section 2 in cases like these because the text of Section 2 does not apply to single-member redistricting and because Section 2 is unconstitutional as the district court applied it here. We disagree on both counts. Alabama first argues that Section 2 does not apply to single-member redistricting. Echoing Justice Thomas's concurrence in Holder v. Hall, Alabama reads Section 2's reference to standard, practice, or procedure to mean only the methods for conducting a part of the voting process that might be used to interfere with a citizen's ability to cast his vote. Examples of covered activities would include registration requirements, the locations of polling places, the times polls are open, the use of paper ballots as opposed to voting machines, and other similar aspects of the voting process, but not a single-member districting system or the selection of one set of districting lines over another. This understanding of Section 2 cannot be reconciled with our precedent. As recounted above, we have applied Section 2 to states' districting maps in an unbroken line of decisions stretching four decades. In doing so, we have unanimously held that Section 2 and Jingles certainly apply to claims challenging single-member districts, and we have even invalidated portions of a state's single-district map under Section 2. Alabama's approach would require abandoning this precedent, overruling the interpretation of Section 2 as set out in nearly a dozen of our cases. We decline to take that step. Congress is undoubtedly aware of our construing Section 2 to apply to districting challenges. It can change that if it likes. But until and unless it does, statutory stare decisis counsels are staying the course. 
The statutory text, in any event, supports the conclusion that Section 2 applies to single-member districts. Alabama's own proffered definition of a procedure is the manner or method of proceeding in a process or course of action. But the manner of proceeding in the act of voting entails determining in which districts voters will vote. The fact that the term procedure is preceded by the phrase qualification or prerequisite to voting does not change its meaning. It is hard to imagine many more fundamental prerequisites to voting than determining where to cast your ballot or who you are eligible to vote for. Perhaps for that reason, even Alabama does not bear the courage of its conviction on this point. It refuses to argue that Section 2 is inapplicable to multi-member districting, though its textual arguments apply with equal force in that context. The dissent, by contrast, goes where even Alabama does not dare, arguing that Section 2 is wholly inapplicable to districting, because it focuses on ballot access and counting only. But the statutory text upon which the dissent relies supports the exact opposite conclusion. The relevant section provides that the terms vote or voting shall include all action necessary to make a vote effective. Those actions include, but are not limited to, actions required by law prerequisite to voting, casting a ballot, and having such ballot counted properly and included in the appropriate totals of votes cast. It would be anomalous to read the broad language of the statute, all action necessary, including but not limited to, to have the crabbed reach that Justice Thomas posits. And we have already discussed why determining where to cast a ballot constitutes a prerequisite to voting, as the statute requires. The dissent also contends that applying Section 2 to districting rests on systematic neglect of the ballot access focus of the 1960s voting rights struggles. But history did not stop in 1960. As we have explained, Congress adopted the amended Section 2 in response to the 1980 decision City of Mobile, a case about districting. And as the dissent itself acknowledges, Congress drew Section 2B's current operative language from the 1973 decision White v. Register, a case that was also about districting. This was not lost on anyone when Section 2 was amended. Indeed, it was the precise reason that the contentious debates over proportionality raged. Debates that would have made little sense if Section 2 covered only poll taxes and the like, as the dissent contends. We also reject Alabama's argument that Section 2 as applied to redistricting is unconstitutional under the 15th Amendment. According to Alabama, that amendment permits Congress to legislate against only purposeful discrimination by states. But we held over 40 years ago that even if Section 1 of the 15th Amendment prohibits only purposeful discrimination, 
the prior decisions of this court foreclose any argument that Congress may not, pursuant to Section 2 of the 15th Amendment, outlaw voting practices that are discriminatory in effect. The VRA's ban on electoral changes that are discriminatory in effect, we emphasized, is an appropriate method of promoting the purposes of the 15th Amendment. As City of Rome recognized, we had reached the very same conclusion in South Carolina v. Katzenbach, a decision issued right after the VRA was first enacted. Alabama further argues that even if the 15th Amendment authorizes the effects test of Section 2, that amendment does not authorize race-based redistricting as a remedy for Section 2 violations. But for the last four decades, this court and the lower federal courts have repeatedly applied the effects test of Section 2 as interpreted in jingles, and under certain circumstances, have authorized race-based redistricting as a remedy for state districting maps that violate Section 2. In light of that precedent, including City of Rome, we are not persuaded by Alabama's arguments that Section 2, as interpreted in jingles, exceeds the remedial authority of Congress. The concern that Section 2 may impermissibly elevate race in the allocation of political power within the states is, of course, not new. Our opinion today does not diminish or disregard these concerns. It simply holds that a faithful application of our precedents and a fair reading of the record before us do not bear them out here. The judgments of the District Court for the Northern District of Alabama in the Castor case and of the three-judge District Court in the Milligan case are affirmed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.